Meet Janice. Unfortunately, her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns. I literally sneezed 40 times in a row once. Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes, fast with online pickup or delivery. No more suffering? That's nothing to sneeze at. (laughs) I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. We are just two weeks away from the midterm elections, and the battle for control of Congress and the state houses literally could not be closer. Polls have been tightening for weeks as Republicans have edged into Democratic gains that were made over the summer. And tonight, debates just wrapped in the races for New York governor and Pennsylvania Senate. And we will have a lot more on that in a second. But before we do, it's worth remembering exactly how we got here, given what an extraordinary roller coaster of an election year this has been. Remember a few months ago, on June 7th, when the city of San Francisco shocked the country when it recalled its progressive district attorney, Chase Boudin. The campaign against Boudin had framed his criminal justice reform platform as somehow soft on crime, provoking backlash among San Franciscans. And that local election in blue, blue California was held up by pundits as a canary in the coal mine for Democrats. The party, according to them, had a crime problem that Republicans would seize on in an election year, one that already favored Republicans. And here were some of those headlines. Progressive backlash in California fuels Democratic debate over crime. California voters send a stark message to Democrats on crime and homelessness. Democrats need to understand the real message San Francisco sent. At the same time, prices across the country were beginning to soar. The week of that recall, gas in the U.S. topped $5 a gallon for the first time ever, and Republicans began gearing up to make the election all about inflation. So those were theoretically the contours of this election only a few months ago, as of the first week of June. And then, two weeks later, everything changed. The United States Supreme Court struck down a 50-year precedent protecting a woman's right to control her own body, which just upended political dynamics across the country. And at first, Democrats really didn't know how to react. Their initial response, if you recall it, was confused and it was even a little cringy. Remember that this is what congressional Democrats decided to do the, the day the court overturned Roe. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans, white with foam, God bless America, my to say, that a cappella performance did not immediately inspire confidence among the 160 million women who had just lost their fundamental right to bodily autonomy. But Democrats did eventually find their focus, and they coalesced, in large part because of what happened about six weeks later. On August 2nd, voters in deep red Kansas went to the polls in droves to reject a ballot measure that would have allowed the state to ban abortion. And Democrats heard that message out of Kansas and they they heard it loud and clear. It was time to make this campaign a referendum on Republican assaults on personal freedom. Abortion became the central issue of the campaign. Ads about abortion quickly became the norm as Democrats flooded the airwaves with messaging about the threats to reproductive rights. And it seemed to work. Democrats rose in the polls in parallel to outrage over the Supreme Court's decision as, as that spread across the country. But as Democrats focused their message on abortion, there was just simply less time to talk about other issues, some of which were really pretty good for Democrats. 
Because over the course of that same summer, Democrats managed to pull off a historic legislative sweep, passing broadly popular policies like lowering the price of prescription drugs, passing the biggest expansion of veterans' health care in U.S. history, allowing people to buy prescription hearing aids over the counter, the first major gun safety legislation in decades. And that was all on top of other major victories they had passed the previous year, like COVID relief in the form of checks for millions of Americans and a major investment in our nation's infrastructure. But in the last several months, all that stuff has effectively been on the back burner. According to a new analysis by The Washington Post, Democrats have spent more than $100 million on abortion ads since Labor Day, compared to just $28 million on other health care issues and just $20 million on ads about jobs. And so here we are. And man, is this election going to be a nail biter? The current polling averages show Senate races in Georgia, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Nevada, Ohio and Arizona all within four points, which in a lot of cases is the margin of error. The parties are going to be battling it out for every single vote. So in the closing weeks of this election, Republicans are sharpening their message and they are using everything in their arsenal. Yes, they are going after Democrats on the economy and inflation. And surprise, they are hitting Democrats on crime. The very same issue Democrats were worried about after that San Francisco recall back in early June. Republicans are focused on urban crime, and they are pushing racially coded messages to scare voters into believing that Democrats want to turn this country into a scene out of Mad Max. That same Washington Post analysis found that Republicans have spent nearly $50 million on ads focused on crime since Labor Day, making it one of their top issues nationally. And here is how that issue played out in tonight's debates. John Fetterman, during this crime wave, has been trying to get as many murderers convicted and sentenced to life in prison out of jail as possible. I'm running to take back our streets and to support unapologetically our men and women in law enforcement. People who are afraid of being pushed in front of oncoming subway cars. They're being stabbed, beaten to death on the street with hammers. That last comment was from Lee Zeldin, the Republican candidate who is now polling within four points of Democratic incumbent Kathy Hochul in a state, New York, that has not elected a Republican as its governor in over two decades. This is the kind of Republican strategy that Democrats thought they would be facing back when Chase Boudin, the San Francisco DA, lost his recall election, which now seems like it happened approximately two lifetimes ago. But with now just two weeks left, the question is, do Democrats have enough time to counter that Republican message and remind regular Americans, voters of all stripes, about the pretty major things they have accomplished in the last two years. Joining me now at the big board, where he lives, is MSNBC national political correspondent Steve Kornacki. Steve, it seems like we're really, I mean, Chris Hayes, my friend and colleague, used the phrase jump ball to describe what might happen on November 8th. How is it looking in these Senate races that we just talked about? And what can you tell us about how quickly they have tightened in these closing weeks of the of the race? Yeah, some of them have tightened dramatically, including that Pennsylvania race where that debate obviously playing out tonight. Let's take a look here at the poll average. On the left, you see the seats that Democrats are defending. On the right, you see the seats that Republicans are defending. And right away, you see the significant to Democrats, how crucial that Pennsylvania race is. Because if you look at it this way, there is one Democratic held seat right now. It's in Nevada, where the Republican, Adam Laxalt, actually leads in the poll average. Close, but he does lead. And if Laxalt were to win there, that'd be a Republican gain. The Republicans need a gain, a net gain of one seat, and they get the Senate. So the function of Pennsylvania right now for Democrats is if Fetterman, who leads in the polling average by just over a point, hangs on, it would basically cancel out a loss 
in Nevada and allow Democrats to keep the Senate. It's the only Republican held seat. Pennsylvania is where Democrats now lead the poll average. But you talk about tightening. You see one point three is the Fetterman lead right now. Over the summer, it was eight point seven. So it's come all the way down from nearly nine to barely a point. So Democrats getting very jittery, I think, about their chances of hanging of of, uh, Fetterman hanging on there in Pennsylvania. That raises the question for Democrats. If it's not Pennsylvania, is there another Republican seat on this board that they could pick off? Now, take a look. Second here. Second closest. It's Ohio. Republican seat. J.D. Vance is leading, but that's close. It's two points on average. Here's the skepticism, I think, that Republicans and many Democrats have when When it comes to Ohio, we talk so much about how there have been polling misses in recent elections. The polling misses have been really kind of really centered in the Midwest, particularly Ohio. Here's the final poll average in Ohio in 16 and in 20. Remember, Democrats went into Election Day both years thinking they really could win Ohio. Here's what happened. Trump didn't just win. He won big. Some of the biggest polling misses, two straight elections. And by the way, the 2018 midterm, the governor's race, there was a polling miss there as well. The polls have overestimated Democratic support in Ohio in recent elections. So there's some thought of, hey, have they really figured this out in a state like Ohio? Is a J.D. Vance lead of two going to turn out to be something more. We'll see. But that's the skepticism that some have when they look at that number. So, again, if you're a Democrat and you're looking for a Republican seat, you could pick off here. What about Wisconsin? Ron Johnson, he's a two term incumbent leading by about two and a half points in the polls right here. Interestingly, Johnson was losing in the polls in Wisconsin over the summer, now leads. What explains that change? Well, you mentioned emphasis on crime. Johnson's really played up crime. Mandela Barnes, his Democratic opponent, has really leaned in on the abortion message. Here's a poll from Marquette Law. They basically asked, are these issues important to you? And I think this was a significant finding. Nearly 90 percent said that crime is an important issue to them. Abortion, it was just about 10 points less. So there is a difference there in terms of the resonance of these two issues. Crime, which Johnson is running hard on, and abortion, which which, uh, uh, Barnes is running hard on. That might explain the the switch that we've seen in that race that has put Johnson ahead. So we return to those averages. Again, Democrats really want to win at least one of these Republican held seats right now. If you take a look at at the uh, target list for Republicans, then if Democrats are winning one here and Republicans only get Nevada, Democrats hold the Senate. The name of the game for Democrats then would be hold everything else. And that's where Georgia comes into play, because look how close that Warnock-Walker race has gotten. On average, a half point lead for Warnock. And remember, there's that possibility in Georgia, if nobody gets 50 percent on Election Day, they go to a runoff. Possible Georgia could be decided in a runoff. The Senate could be decided in a runoff. But here's what I think Georgia kind of hinges on. Right now, if you look at the governor's race in Georgia, the Republican Brian Kemp is over 50 percent and pretty comfortably ahead of his Democratic opponent, Stacey Abrams. Kemp is running well ahead of Walker. There is a voter in Georgia. This seems to be it's a suburban voter. It tends to be who doesn't really like Biden, doesn't really like the Democrats, but also doesn't like Donald Trump. And remember, Trump went to political war with Brian Kemp earlier this year, tried to take him out as governor. Kemp survived. I think that probably made Kemp okay in that voter's book. Walker much more closely aligned with Donald Trump, certainly than Kemp is. And I think that might explain some of the hesitancy of those types of voters to get behind Walker. Question for the final weeks of this campaign basically is, do those Kemp voters reluctantly at the end of the day, that gap, do they reluctantly vote for Walker? and put him over the top? Or is there a split ticket?
there in Georgia. Democrats, the chances for the Senate may hinge on that. Also interesting that Warnock and Abrams have been sort of pursuing different strategies, and you're seeing those different strategies borne out in the numbers. Steve Kornacki, thanks to you, as always. Uh, be sure to listen to Steve's brand new podcast, The Revolution with Steve Kornacki. I love the idea of Steve leading a revolution, which drops on Monday. It is the story of the Republican takeover of Congress in 1994, not Steve Kornacki's personal revolution. But I, I await that podcast, too. Uh, now I want to turn to Dan Pfeiffer, former senior advisor to President Obama and now co-host of a little thing called Pod Save America. Dan, it's always <laughs> I need all the help to understand what's happening here, my friend. And I want to get right to this kind of bigger changed strategy the Democrats have pursued mm. through the year, right? Like I wanted everybody to remind, we wanted, we needed to collectively remind ourselves of what was happening in June and the ways in which we thought this, uh, this election would be litigated and how that changed after Dobbs. And now we sort of seem to be in a sort of gray space between Dobbs and between the, you know, June 7th recall of Chase and Boudin. Where what do you make of the Democratic strategy thus far and what has to happen in the closing two weeks here? Sure. If you go back to earlier this year, what Democrats have always wanted this election to be about is a referendum on Republican extremism. That's why it was so important. They so important. They focus on Dobbs, on Republicans taking away personal freedoms, attacking marriage equality, bullying gay and trans kids, book bans, all of that. And here we are now in this last phase. Economic pessimism has picked up in recent weeks. Gas prices had gone down all summer, went up in September. They're going down now, but people still tell pollsters they think they're paying more for gas. So what Democrats have to do, and you're seeing this in a lot of races, and you've seen President Biden do this recently, is connect the the very resonant argument that Republicans are extremists and apply it to economic issues is a way to disqualify them as, as people who will fight for them and deal with inflation. So that's why they will cut Social Security and Medicare, cut taxes for uh, large corporations and the wealthy. And so that's the pivot here. We're not, we are building on the extremist argument. That's what a good campaign would do. We're not making a last minute panic pivot. Well, I, I guess I wonder though, if you think the administration, Democratic candidates, Democrats writ large, have they touted their achievements enough, given that Republicans are going hard on this message about, you know, how to help working class Americans and the Biden administration and Democrats in, the, in Congress have a really pretty compelling argument to make about the concrete steps they've taken to help people who are working class Americans? I think in this environment, it would be a historic mistake to simply tout your achievements, to say, yes, you were feeling economic pain. Yes, your costs have gone up. Look at this bill we passed almost two years ago that sent you checks that you spent already. Here's this bill we passed that is going to reduce inflation, but much of it's going in later this year in the year's future. That is out of touch. The right way to talk about our accomplishments is proof of what we're going to do in the future. Good campaigns don't look backwards, they look forward. So, and you saw President Biden do this in his remarks at the White House on Friday, is to say, we took on the pharmaceutical companies. We took on the big oil companies. We are we are raising taxes on corporations in order to help lower costs. That's why you can trust us to fight for you to deal with higher costs. You can't trust the people who want to give tax cuts to big oil to deal with high gas prices. You can't trust the people who want to give tax cuts to Wall Street banks to fight for you in a world of greedy corporations. So it is the, it's proof of what you're going to do going forward, not asking for a pat on the back for what you did. I think that is the pivot here. I think the president's laid that out in a couple of speeches, and I hope a lot of Democrats will follow that. 
I want to ask you, though, about crime, because that seems to be, mm-hmm. of all the issues, yeah. it's the one that the glittery object that uh, Republicans are most mm-hmm. um, intent on making it their the centerpiece of their closing argument here. We heard it no, a number of times in key Senate um, debates this evening. And yet, if you look at the statistics, and I don't know why this isn't on, on a mug somewhere <laughs> as a fundraising tool, <laughs> the top five states with the highest homicide mortality rates are all red states. Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and Missouri, Arkansas. How are Democrats playing defense on this? How is this not a stat that is mentioned every single time Republicans want to talk about crime? I mean, well, this is this has been the Republicans. This is their break glass issue in every election. It goes back to the Willie Horton ad in 1988. They did it against Barack Obama. Trump tried it in 2020. Of course, they're doing it here. And as you said in your opening, it it's Crime is the topic, but it's a proxy for race. All There is a lot of racially coded language here. A lot of it's pretty explicitly racist. And so the way Democrats should handle this, and some campaigns like the Fetterman campaign have done this very well, is to take it on, to state what you are for. That you are, that you will stand, that you were, you have fought, you have fought crime in your previous job. You will fund the, you will fund responsible, accountable policing. And then what you do is you pivot because these are the trap in all of these things is something President Obama used to say is, is you don't play their game, you call out their game. So now talk about why they are trying to use crime to scare you, to distract from their extremist agenda that wants to infringe on your personal freedoms, cut your Medicare. Cut taxes for corporations. And so you have to, you have to take it on state what you were for. Do not let them incorrectly and inaccurately frame Democrats as being soft on crime. Call them out. And you, and in some states, as you point out, you can do that very aggressively against the Republicans who have overseen steep increases in crime over the last couple of years. I mean, just put it on a mug, carry it around with you on the campaign trail. (laughs) I got Dan, what do you make of the numbers in terms of voters of color who are key parts of the Democratic coalition, Uh, specifically black voters, Hispanic voters? We have news uh, polling basically that Democratic leads with Hispanic voters are smaller than they were in 2018. And there's less enthusiasm among black voters, specifically black male voters leading into this year's midterms. Do you see that as cause for concern? I feel like there's two schools of thought here. One is, yes, it's cause for concern. And the other is Democrats are always freaking out about this before every election and it never comes to pass. Where do you stand on it? My philosophy since the 2016 election is worry about everything, panic about nothing. So I'm going to file this under that category of worry about it. And we have to take it very seriously. We have seen in 2020... that Democrats did worse with these this core group of voters who've been part of our coalition for a long time than we had in previous years. And so we have to watch very carefully. And so we have to what I think we have to think about is or focus on is not why are these voters not supporting us, is how do we go out and get their support? How do we organize in their community? How do we talk to them about why voting for Democrats matter? Why us? Why not Republicans? And aggressively make the case we have to persuade them. Because I think for too long, too many Democrats have considered Black voters, Latino voters, young voters to be a GOTV or get out the vote university. If we just tell them that that an election is happening, a Democrat's on the ballot, they vote. We don't. We need to persuade them. Like like pollsters, like pundits always talk about swing voters. We have to go out and make a case to them. There are some campaigns who are doing that very well here. We'll have to see what the actual numbers are in this election because, as as Steve pointed out in the previous section, we don't know if these polls are right or not. So let's just go make the case. Let's persuade them. Let's turn them out and let's see what happens on November 8th. We have two weeks to go, Dan. Is that long enough to persuade anybody at this stage? 
Absolutely. I mean, especially now where people can vote right in the moment in which you talk to them in a lot of states because of early voting. Like the clock is ticking for sure. I would rather be up in these possibly incorrect polls than down in these possibly incorrect polls in all these states. I'd rather us be leading in all the races, but there is still time in these races for all of like panic in the streets, the, you know, all the chest flumming from Republicans is these races are ending up where they were always going to end up. They are taking places in states that Joe Biden in many cases won by less than a point in 2020. They were going to be coin flips. They were going to be, whether the poll said that John Fetterman was up by 10 or now he's up by 1.3, they were always going to be incredibly close. That's where we are. And now all that's left to do is ignore the polls and just go get the work done over the next couple of weeks and see what we can do. The Jedi master of American politics, Dan Pfeiffer, <laughs> taking us all off the ledge, bring us back into the living room. Sanity rules. Former senior advisor to President Obama, now co-host of The Great Pod Save America. Dan, thanks for making the time. Thank you. We have much more to come tonight, just two weeks from Election Day. I'll say it over and over again. Next, we turn our focus to Pennsylvania and tonight's Fetterman-Oz debate. Rebecca Tracer wrote the definitive profile of John Fetterman, and she joins us next. And coming up, the bonkers election deniers who might just end up running an election near you. Plus, Dr. Anthony Fauci joins us live. That's next, coming up. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate, mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. And this campaign is all about, to me, is about fighting for everyone in Pennsylvania that ever got knocked down that needs to get back up and fighting for all forgotten communities all across Pennsylvania that also got knocked down. That was Democratic Pennsylvania Senate candidate John Fetterman addressing his stroke in the first few minutes of the first and only debate in Pennsylvania's insanely high-stakes Senate race. The latest CBS polling before the debate shows just how close this race has become. Fetterman leads his Republican opponent, Mehmet Oz, by two points, which is well within the margin of error. Just a month ago, Fetterman was leading by five points. Aside from his health, the debate touched on other key issues that have mobilized voters nationwide, including abortion. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive, to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. Contrast that with my opponent, John Fetterman, who on this debate stage said that he would demand federally mandated rules for all states they'd have to follow that would allow abortion at 38 weeks. I want to look into the face of every woman 
in Pennsylvania. You know, if you believe that the choice of your reproductive freedom belongs with Dr. Oz, then you have a choice. But if you believe that the choice for abortion belongs between you and your doctor, that's what I fight for. Roe v. Wade, for me, is should be the law. He celebrated when Roe v. Wade went down, and my campaign would fight for Roe v. Wade, and if given the opportunity to codify it into law. Fetterman also struck back at Dr. Oz for using Senator Bernie Sanders as a point of attack against Fetterman during his campaign. He keeps talking about Bernie, Bernie Sanders. You know, three, year, three years ago, he was on his show and he hugged him and he said, I love this guy. You know what? Why don't you pretend that you, you live in Vermont instead of Pennsylvania and run against Bernie Sanders? Because all you can do is talk about Bernie Sanders, because my truth is, is that healthcare is a basic fundamental right. And I believe in expanding that. And I believe about supporting fighting for health care, the kind of health care that saved my life. Joining us now is Rebecca Tracer, a writer at large for New York Magazine, who's been reporting on John Fetterman's Senate campaign. Rebecca, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, Alex. So I want to know what you thought of this debate. One of the things that you have such a a thoughtful and incisive way of kind of presenting how Fetterman is trying to work through these health issues in the context of running probably the highest stakes uh, Senate campaign in the country. And one of the things you posit in your article is that Fetterman's campaign is hoping to turn his sort of vulnerability into an asset here. Do you think he did so on the debate stage tonight? I think it's tough to say whether or not it will wind up being an asset with voters, but it was certainly an example of such remarkable transparency. The opposite of what what the Oz campaign has sort of asserted, which is that he's somehow hiding something about his health. I mean, showing up for an hour debate and it was, as he said, starting out, he he said he was going to talk about the elephant in the room. You played the clip. He said, I'm going to miss words. And and you could tell I, I wrote in my story about how in my interview with him, there was a moment where he became frustrated and stressed out and it made some of his communicative problems worse. And I think that this context and what you described as the insanely high stakes of this election, this single debate, clearly this was a candidate who was feeling stress and there was such intense scrutiny, often ableist scrutiny on how he was going to communicate. And he just did a debate in front of, a, you know, the nation, you know, an audience of anyone who could listen. And it was so transparent. He did fumble. He did make verbal mistakes, um, you know, the, and, and it was all on view. And I cannot predict whether that will help him or not. I know from my reporting that I was doing over the past, you know, six to six to seven weeks that voters were responding to his public appearances, to his rally appearances, to his speeches, to the the fact that he was doing interviews, including with you here several weeks ago, um, very warmly. How will that come out? How will that, you know, follow this debate, I, I cannot predict. But, the, the you know, I think it's also really interesting. You played a lot of clips. There were moments where he was really strong, including that Bernie Sanders clip, yeah. including his very fluent and direct response on raising the minimum wage, I thought was a really strong mo- moment for him. He had some really, really strong comebacks. And, and his opponent, Oz, was first of all he also fumbled right i fumble on television right so it's the, the, there is i definitely the, the, fumble Oz was on nervous television. And, and hesitant at first too yeah i mean this this happens right um but oz also 
was really slippery in his presentation and in terms of what he was saying. I mean, I was sort of bowled over by by how frequently and fluently Oz lied or refused to answer um, and and gave answers that I, th- I thought were just terrible. The one that you played about abortion, w- you know, was one of them, I think, the, where he said that the decision should be made between women, doctors and their local elected officials. I mean, that is <laughs> a terrible thing to say. And yet I think some people are going to think, oh, Oz is bucking party, party orthodoxy by suggesting he's not going to vote for a federal ban on abortion, a.k.a. Lindsey Graham's uh, 15-week federal abortion ban. What did you think of that part of it? Yeah, I thought that was also a little slippery because, like many things, he actually refused to say, on this day, I would vote against Lindsey Graham, right? He wouldn't, he wouldn't give them that solidity of an opinion, right? So he did, he did say he would not support, uh, federal legislation on abortion, but I thought it was really interesting. I, the line that actually jumped out at me more than the one you just played and that we just talked about is he actually invoked his role as doctor. If you, there's another clip from the debate that's worth looking at where he says, as a doctor, he's really offended that we would interfere with the state's right to decide about abortion. And he said he actually used his he wasn't saying like as someone who really believes in states rights, I would never. He said as a doctor, I would never interfere with the individual state's ability to govern whether or not a person can have access to a safe abortion. It was it was sort of a wild juxtaposition (laughs) of his medical experience with his deep belief in every individual state's right Usually a state is not involved in the decisions made between a patient and her or his doctor. Therefore, the statement. Well, yeah, he had a weird medical practice, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One one more, Rebecca, the crime piece. Um, You bring up Fetterman's background, which I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't really understand vis-a-vis crime and the ways in which Oz has tried to tether uh, Fetterman's vulnerabilities to also being soft on crime. Do you think that that's any more an effective line of attack, given what we know of Fetterman's background and the person he is just sort of categorically is not a weak person? And I think no matter what his recovery process looks like, the man does not look enfeebled. No, he doesn't. And actually, you know, it, it's very interesting because I was thinking about that tonight. So much of the initial attack that that Oz made on Fetterman about crime has to do with his work on the parole, the clemency board and granting clemency, um, including to two brothers who work on his campaign now who were wrongly convicted and served 27 years for a murder that they did not commit. Um, and it has nothing to do with sort of crime statistics around the country. It is truly a, a bait and switch argument that is that is rooted in a lie. Um, Fetterman himself has actually been very friendly and and pro-police. I think more pro-police than a lot of progressives would would like him to be. Right. Um, but it is also true that we know that a right wing, no matter how dishonest and no and no matter how sort of morally corrupt um, and 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 false uh, right-wing attacks on Democrats for being soft as crime, which are always racially coded and often gendered to softness, weakness, right? You know, this, this stuff is resonant. People reach for those kinds of weapons because they're effective in a country that responds to racism and to sexism um, as communicative tools to take down a candidate. Uh, Fetterman... It, 
you know, is such an interesting candidate in part because he just it's very hard to imagine using this kind of racist and sexist language against him. Um, but, you know, I, I think we have to see that. I think his responses tonight on crime, you know, were pretty communicatively effective. Um, but this is, you know, very sweet candy that Republicans are selling to a country that is so deeply built and attuned to messages that are fundamentally misogynistic and racist in nature. I would say candy with a poison center. Rebecca Traster, writer at large for New York Magazine. Yeah. Rebecca, thank you for making time with for us tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Still ahead, 2020 election deniers are on the ballot next month. Will they use this election to set up conspiracies for the next presidential election in 2024? I bet you think you know the answer, but stay tuned. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated. All right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Why is my opponent stirring the pot? Our dishonest Secretary of State is now claiming they have seen a rise in misinformation leading up to the November election. That was Republican candidate for Michigan Secretary of State Christina Caramo yesterday. Now, where could the rise in misinformation about elections in Michigan, where could that be coming from? I'm glad Christina Caramo asked. Here she is again today, trying to make a 2020 video of election workers look suspicious with no evidence or really any legitimate reason. In this video, you see an unmarked SUV arrive at a drop box at a satellite voting center. A young man can be seen unloading large stacks of ballots from the drop box while an elderly woman retrieves a large black garbage bag from the back of the vehicle. She snaps it open and walks it over to the worker who proceeds to stuff the garbage bag with absentee ballots. At no point in this video does Karama point to any evidence of anything. She just narrates a benign video of election workers doing their job like it's some kind of true crime documentary. And that video from today is part of 18 in a series of videos just like it. If Christina Karama were your friend's mom on Facebook putting out these kinds of videos, that would be one thing. And maybe you'd say, hey, mom, that friend of yours is kind of weird. But this is a person who is running to be secretary of state. Kristen Caramo is running to be put in charge of elections in the state of Michigan, and it is starting to look like she could actually win. According to new polling by CNN, Caramo is only four points behind Democratic Michigan secretary of state Jocelyn Benson, and that is within the margin of error. What makes that all the more concerning is that Caramo is not alone. 
Right now, there are four 2020 election deniers, all of them Republicans, with a real chance of winning their secretary of state races. In Arizona, the 2020 election denier Mark Fincham is more than a point ahead of his Democratic opponent, Adrian Fontes. And in Nevada, the 2020 election denier Republican Jim Marchant is up by eight points, which is well beyond the margin of error. I should mention that Marchant's election denialism has gone so far that he is now alleging that Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff somehow stole their respective elections. For real. These same politicians keep winning re-election. How is that possible? It's not. Jim Marchant is the fighter Nevadans need. This is stuff Republicans are saying out loud as part of a strategy. And all three of those election deniers, Karamo, Fincham, and Marchant, have been endorsed by former President Trump. The other election denier who might actually win her Secretary of State race is Minnesota Republican Kim Crockett. The latest polls have her trailing her Democratic opponent, Steve Simon, by a full seven points. But today, two weeks before the election, she finally got her Trump endorsement. So that could mean four election-denying Trump supporters in charge of running key purple state elections by the time Trump himself is potentially back on the ballot in 2024, which is concerning. What makes it decidedly bonkers is that even if they don't win, they may try to stick around. Rolling Stone reported this weekend that President Trump has been holding in-person meetings for more than a month now to gin up as many potential legal challenges as possible to this year's midterm elections. Trump sees those challenges as a dress rehearsal for Trump 2024. Two of these Republican candidates for secretary of state have already refused to say whether they would accept the results if they lost. Election day is November 8th. Earlier this afternoon, President Biden received his latest booster, the bivalent booster, the one that's more effective against the Omicron variant of COVID-19. The president urged the event, uh, used the event to urge Americans to protect themselves against COVID as winter draws near. Biden made a point at the end of his speech to plead with Republicans, asking them to essentially quit it with the misinformation about COVID. Ending their anti-vax crusade and ceasing their attacks on Dr. Anthony Fauci would be quite helpful on a number of public health fronts. But the reality of where Republicans are on this issue is quite stark. I want to lock somebody down. And it's that liar, Dr. Fauci. I'm just sick of seeing him. I know he says he's going to retire. Someone needs to grab that little elf and chuck him across the Potomac. The bottom line with Anthony Fauci and a lot of his underlings, they were running amok as unelected bureaucrats. They were funding the very same people who cooked up the COVID-19 virus, and Fauci must be held accountable for that. Dr. Fauci, retirement or not, is going to be spending a lot of time in front of a congressional committee and committees if Republicans take back control. Anthony Fauci and all these other folks that we're going to subpoena, they better put them in jail as well. We are over two and a half years into this pandemic, and the threats against Dr. Fauci, the face of the federal government's response to COVID-19, those threats are at full tilt. As hundreds of Americans are still dying from this disease every day, and officials worry about a triple-demic of the flu, COVID, and RSV, the respiratory virus that has pediatric hospitals across the country on the brink, as that is all happening, Republicans would instead like you to look away and lock up Dr. Fauci. 
Joining us now is Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and chief medical advisor to President Biden. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for being here. I'm sorry you have to hear this. I'm sure it's not the first time that you've heard some of these outrageous insults. What is it like to be at the center of what is a concerted campaign to target you as somehow responsible for COVID or federal government overreach or just the face of the looming destruction of America? Why do you think this is happening? Well, I think it's pretty obvious, Alex, it's purely politically motivated. They're running on that. They're raising campaign money. They pick out a boogeyman uh, who they feel represents the antithesis of what they want. And if you look at what I've been doing, focusing like a laser for almost now three years, is to protect the health and the safety of the American public by getting people vaccinating, by having them practice good public health practices. They construe that as somehow or other being an encroachment upon their freedom when we know things like vaccines have already saved millions of lives. And yet when you talk about getting vaccinated and encouraging people to get vaccinated, or when you have a very high level of virus in the community to encourage people to wear masks, which are well known to protect you from getting infected, they make that a political issue. So I, you know, nobody likes to see that kind of thing said about you, but I don't pay hardly any attention to that. And I just focus on my job, which is to make sure we ensure the health of the American public. If they want to play political games that almost become ludicrous, they're so preposterous. And I think anybody that pays attention to it, that thinks about it and gives it some thought, realizes, A, it's politically motivated, and B, it's so ridiculous it is almost ludicrous. I worry, though, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but it seems like the sort of dark forces of racism and anti-Semitism and anti-vax and, you know, arch-conservative ideology are folding onto themselves around this COVID issue. I mean, I think this past weekend, Beverly Hills police in California had to look into anti-Semitic flyers that were distributed around Beverly Hills, listing CDC officials who have Jewish last names saying every single aspect of the COVID agenda is Jewish. That worries me as an American citizen. That worries me as someone who believes in the work that you've been doing and sees it as essential to public health. Does it worry you? And, and does it concern you that this, this vitriol has grown as, and has reached tentacles into other other sort of poisonous areas of American politics. Right. I think you have a very important point there, Alex, that has worried me much, much more so than personal attacks on me. It's the things you brought out there, the complete denial of reality, the normalization of untruths, where there's so much lying going on over there that people accept it as being part of the norm. And I think if anybody looks at history and finds out and examines when you distort reality and keep lying over and over again, after a while, you get a lot of people believing it. And that is the beginning, I believe, of the destruction of our democracy. So it's less an attack on me or my Jewish colleagues at the CDC that they're attacking. It's really, in my mind, an affront on our democracy. It's the same mindset 
that says the president didn't win the election, even though every single examination proved that he did. When they say that January the 6th did not exist and it was a friendly visit to the gift shop at the Capitol, I mean, that kind of mentality to me is a danger to democracy. Let me just ask you about the work at hand on our doorstep, which is getting people vaccinated with this bivalent booster. Not only does it seem essential for the winter, it's also about closing off avenues to let this virus mutate even further, is it not? Yes, it's a combination of personal protection to protect the individual, but to also to blunt the capability of the virus if you let it freely replicate. Viruses don't mutate unless they freely replicate. And if you prevent them to any degree from freely replicating, and by replicating, I mean going from person to person and essentially infecting a lot of people, you diminish greatly their capability of mutating. And if you don't allow them to mutate regularly, then the fact is you will very unlikely get more variants. Variants are the results of mutations that ultimately affect the function of a virus and leads to a new variant. Dr. Anthony Fauci, quite literally fighting the good fight, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and chief medical advisor to President Biden. Thank you so much, Dr. Fauci. That does it for us tonight. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.